We live in a society that is deeply confused. Uh, two weeks ago, as we continued our walk through the book of Colossians, we considered how it is that our culture is confused about what it means to be a husband and a wife, a husband or a wife. Then last week, we considered how it is that parents are to biblically disciple their children towards obedience and ultimately the hope of a new heart. And this morning, we come to the Apostle Paul's instructions, uh, the last for the Christian household, when we come to his consideration of the topic of work. And of course, this is an area that our culture is confused in many ways about as well. You know, for some, their work is their identity. They are an engineer. They are a mother. They live for proposals. They find their security and hope and their paycheck. Uh, work is everything to these people. Yet for others, work is a drudgery. It's something that must be endured. Uh, these people live for the weekends and dread Monday mornings. Work is a necessary evil, but nothing more. Of course, as Christians, we can fall into these same ditches, can't we? Uh, in different seasons of our life, we can go back and forth between these ditches. How then should we think biblically about work? Why is work important? Why is work not ultimate? Uh, this morning we come to Colossians 3 and 4 as we wrap up the Apostle Paul's instructions to Christians in the household. So I'd encourage you to turn there now. We'll be in chapter 3, verse 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. You'll recall that the book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul around 60 AD while he was imprisoned. Uh, Epaphras had founded the church in Colossae. He traveled to uh, Paul to give him a report about how things are going. And Paul wrote to kind of confront the false teaching that was becoming more and more prevalent in Colossae, uh, which insisted on asceticism and man-made religion. Uh, the false teaching said that Christ was not sufficient. The Colossian Christians needed to have special knowledge of these spiritual realities if they would be mature. And so Paul wrote to remind the Colossian Christians that no, Christ is all they need. They are full in him. They lack nothing in him. That's true kind of in, in the indicative sense. They're full in Christ. And it's also true in the imperative, the command sense. Now that Christians are in Christ, they're commanded to walk in Christ to look like Christ, to love like Christ, to be like Christ. Uh, we saw in chapter 3 that this looks like, in verse 14, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. That's kind of the Christian ethic that we should be living out in all areas of life. Last week, or rather two weeks ago, we saw how we put on love in marriage, and then we saw how we do that in parenting last week. This morning, we continue the theme uh, as Paul addresses bondservants and masters, in chapter 3, verse 22, to chapter 4, verse 1. We'll have two main sections this morning, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. In every season of life, serve the Lord. In every season of life, serve the Lord. So look with me at Colossians 3, beginning in verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, 
but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Amen. Well, we're going to have two sections this morning. uh, But our first point is actually a little bit of a detour from the the main point of Colossians 3 and 4. Uh, It's a little bit of an excursus uh, entitled Christianity and Slavery. Oftentimes, when people come to passages of the Bible which mention slavery, they'll be confused. Uh, As we look at a passage like one today, we'll wonder, why doesn't the Bible outright condemn slavery? We're confused that in God's word of all places, well, does it condone the behavior? Does it condone its practice? Uh, This past week, during the membership class, we talked about how the Bible is God's word. And because God never lies, the Bible is never wrong in what it asserts to be true. The Bible is never wrong because God is never wrong. And so what do you do with today's passage? Which mentions slavery. And, And the reason this is not just, you know, an academic issue but it's something that we should pay attention to, is because there are some people, uh, including some who would claim to be Christians, who would say that the Bible was wrong on slavery. Uh, They believe that God was never wrong on slavery, but that the scriptures are hopelessly compromised in this area. Uh, That the the Bible, it's accommodated to the, the time and place, the era that it's in, And now we know that the Bible is wrong. And it's then because that the Bible is wrong and can't be trusted when it comes to slavery, for example, well, that we also can't look to it as the source of perfect guidance and truth in other areas of life, like marriage and sexuality. Right? So if Paul was wrong in slavery, why would we listen to him about the husband being the head of his wife? If the Bible is outdated and a product of its times when it comes to slavery, well, then why even pay attention to it when it prohibits same-sex behavior? And so we're left with a dilemma as Christians, right? If we remain committed to the Bible being God's inspired and inerrant word, does that mean that we have to condone slavery? Or is our only other option that the Bible is wrong in some of its commands? I don't think so. Uh, Under this first point, let me give you four reasons why we don't need to blush about the Bible's teaching on slavery. Four reasons the Bible is not wrong in its position on slavery and that we should continue to abide by all of God's word. Reason number one, the Bible does not commend or command slavery. The Bible does not commend or command slavery. If you think back to the opening chapters of Genesis, it's really important. There was no such thing as slavery in the Garden of Eden. 
slavery was not part of the very good creation. Uh, God did not intend for slavery to be part of human society. Rather, slavery gets introduced after the fall, doesn't it? So in the Old Testament, we see that uh, slavery under the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, it was a lot like indentured servitude uh, with a time limit, rights of marriage, and legal protections for the slaves or the bond servants there. You know, why did God allow his Old Testament people to, to have slaves? Well, in Matthew 19, Jesus says that God allowed divorce because of the hardness of heart of his people back then. They had not been given new hearts. And so it is that, that slavery, likewise, um, well, it's a result of the fall like divorce. It w- and, you know, so Jesus, what he does is, the, the Pharisees are saying, hey, what about divorce? Like, how should we think about this? How should we do this? And he says, you guys are missing the point. God did not design or desire divorce. He didn't create it that way in Genesis 1 and 2. Well, it's the same when it comes to slavery. Uh, It was a result of human hardness of heart. Uh, In the New Testament, we see that the apostles are regulating an an existing institution that was just commonplace in the Roman world and empire, but the, the apostles are not at all commending it. We saw that a little bit in our 1 Corinthians 7 scripture reading. Did you, did you notice that? Uh, in verse 21, the apostle Paul commanded the, the slaves who were Christians to get their freedom if you can. In verse 21. In verse 23, don't willingly enter into slavery and become a bondservant of men. Uh, because now as Christians, we're all called to be slaves of Christ. It's unfitting to be slaves of another. Because Christ, he should be our highest unquestioned authority. And so the kind of the final thing, in, a, in just like this quick Bible overview, is that in heaven, there will be no slavery. Slavery is a post-fall, pre-consummation reality. God didn't create it, but God will end it. Okay? So the Bible does not commend slavery. Second reason, I, I wanna, we're just going to focus on kind of New Testament Roman slavery uh, for the next five or ten minutes, is the second reason we don't need to blush about the Bible's teaching, number two, is that the New Testament was not trying to create societal change, okay? The New Testament was not trying to mainly be about changing society. The Christian community was a tiny, 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 tiny minority in the Roman Empire. Uh, much like Christians in Saudi Arabia today. Christians in Saudi Arabia are really in no place to change the government and laws. Uh, They are such a persecuted, tiny minority. In God's providence, once Christianity grew, you know, Christians were able to oppose slavery at a societal level. And so today, um, you know, as Americans, now we're not this tiny persecuted minority, uh, but Christians have the ability to vote. Um, And so Christians over the years have worked to enact laws that are more consistent with the gospel, with God's word. Uh, The Christians in in Rome back then had the responsibility to use their power to promote justice and righteousness, but that power was relatively small in a Roman empire. Uh, But now, praise God, we've been given the ability in a culture like ours to use our authority and power to pursue righteousness. The New Testament doesn't address any number of evils, 
like Imperial Rome's evil conquests or gladiator fights or plenty of other social ills because that wasn't the focus. It wasn't trying to transform society as it was to, to save sinners and bring them into a new society, the kingdom of God. Uh, number three, we need to recognize when we look at the New Testament and the Old Testament, but again, we're just focusing on the New Testament here, uh, we need to remember that New Testament slavery was very, very different than American slavery. New Testament slavery was really different than American slavery. Uh, in First Corinthians, or rather, First Timothy one, the Apostle Paul explicitly condemns man stealing. You can go to First Timothy one. I encourage you to read that passage, uh, where Paul explicitly condemns man stealing. And the reason that's significant is because in America, man stealing was the foundation of American slavery. Uh, stealing Africans from their homes and bringing them to America. In the New Testament, however, one could be a slave by selling yourself into slavery to escape poverty. Uh, or you could sell yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. Slaves were often prisoners of war. Uh, slaves were often, uh, that was the punishment given for, for a certain crime. So I think we, we have to remember, it, it's harder to condemn slavery outright in every instance in Rome because there were things worse than slavery at the time. Like being slaughtered for being on the opposing side, the losing side at a battle. Or with no jails and prisons like our, our country has, um, you either basically were killed or you were made a slave. So we wouldn't view slavery today as a merciful institution, but there were times when people would sell themselves in it, into it, or again, they would be captives, and that was better than the other option. So again, the origin of slavery was, was different in America in the New Testament. Um, one also hugely crucial difference between American slavery and New Testament slavery is that American slavery was basically entirely the result of racist views that people held. It was a racist institution through and through. Uh, there was a horrible anti-image of God theology which viewed people who were not from Europe as less than human, as being subhuman. That was the racist theology undergirding uh, the premises of slavery. This was not the case in Rome. So in, in the Roman Empire, um, you would have people of every ethnicity and nationality and background. Uh, so that if you looked out into a marketplace, you couldn't point your finger and say, okay, he's a slave, she's a slave, she's a free person, he's a free person. You couldn't do that uh, because it wasn't, it wasn't race-based. Uh, so much of the absolute heinousness and wickedness of American slavery was how it was a denial of the image of God for those of darker skin tone. Now, I, I should say the experience of slavery in the Old Testament, or rather the New Testament in America, wasn't too different. And the reason that's important is it's, we, we can't sugarcoat history, right? Uh, we can't make history just say what we want it to say. Slavery was not a good experience for the slaves in Roman times. It could be abusive, sexually exploitative, it involved beatings, breaking families apart. Slaves were viewed as the property of another. 
Uh, so we don't, we don't serve the truth when we look at the Bible and we just say, oh, it was a really great kind of slavery. No, it could be abusive in Roman times. But there were some differences. Uh, slaves could get paid for their work. They could own other slaves. They could receive education, earn their freedom, and obtain standing in society. Uh, again, this, this generally was not the case in American slavery uh, because slavery was not the root issue in America. It was racism that was motivating it and empowering it. Uh, whereas in Roman society, you really could work for 10 years, earn enough money, save it, to then pay off your debt, to then be freed, and you're viewed as an equal, as a freedman at that time. So the New Testament slavery was different than American slavery. And then our fourth reason, uh, we don't need to blush about the, the Bible's teaching on slavery, is that Christianity's love ethic is a mortal wound to slavery. Christians' love ethic is a mortal wound to slavery. We know from history that it was Christian countries and nations that were the first to ever get rid of slavery. Okay, so slavery was a universal human feature prior to Christianity's influence. Uh, there, was pro, there was the proliferation of slavery in Africa, in the Americas, in the Middle East, in Europe, and Asia. Every culture had slavery, and it never was abolished or undone. Then Christianity came along. And eventually Christianity started abolishing it. So I think the question isn't so much, why didn't the New Testament explicitly condemn slavery? That's not a horrible question. But I think a better question is, what about Christianity first led to the abolition movement? What is it about Christianity that eventually undid slavery? I think we can point to a couple things. Uh, number one, we are all made in God's image. How can you own someone when you are equals before God? We can't claim that our social status or ethnicity or wealth gives us more rights or value than another. Uh, we're also all sinners. You know, how, how can someone who's a sinner be entrusted with total ownership of a person? It was slavery so regularly abused, so commonly used for cruelty, that it, you know, as Christians looked at that and they thought, yes, this is just what human beings do. They abuse authority. And when you are given total authority over someone's life, when they become your property, that is totally anti-Christianity. And so number three, the, the love ethic of Christianity, the agape love of Christians. Jesus said we are to love our neighbors. We are to do unto others as they would do to us. And so if you internalize just that message, it will be hard to be a slave owner for very long. If you internalize that you should love your neighbor as yourself, like give them what you would want if you were in their shoes, it would be hard to be a slave owner for very long. Gavin Ortland states, uh, one commentator, even before the actual institution of slavery is abolished, the work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. The work of the gospel abolishes the assumptions and prejudices that make slavery possible. 
I think we see this like played out in real time in the book of Philemon in the New Testament. So the book of Philemon uh, was written to Philemon from Paul. Philemon owned previously Onesimus as his slave. Onesimus came to Paul, uh, got converted by Paul, and was then serving Paul. And then Paul wrote the letter of Philemon to basically uh, give Onesimus back to his master, to Philemon, but with a catch. The Apostle Paul in Philemon, verse 16, it's just one chapter, verse 16 says, Receive Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but above a slave, a beloved brother. Not just that, that Onesimus is now a slave and a brother. No, he is above a slave. He's a beloved brother. You should no longer regard him, Philemon, as your slave. You should realize the gospel logic that's going on here. You guys are equals. Here we see that Paul wants the slave-master relationship to be done away with. But it is interesting that in Philemon, the Apostle Paul says, I don't write to coerce you, but I appeal to you. Uh, he wants Philemon to release Onesimus of his own accord because of his own love for his now brother in Christ. So the fact that in our passage, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul does not say, masters, release your servants. Just manumit your slaves. But he says, treat them well, justly and fairly. I think what that means is that you could be a Christian and be a slave owner in that time. But it is sub-ideal. Paul wants you to manumit your slaves, voluntarily and freely. Just like Philemon is to do with Onesimus. And in fact, if you are a Christian slave owner, you must practice the love neighbor command towards your slaves. Which was totally unheard of in 60 AD. To treat a slave as well as the New Testament would call you to treat them. If you were a Christian slave owner, um, make sure that your slave gets enough time off. Make sure he or she has plentiful food and clothing. Has a good health care plan, retirement, dental. Uh, make sure that he or she gets plenty of time to spend with family. That you train them in skills and trades. You provide for their children's education and food and leisure and college fund. You take them on vacation with you. You view them as your equal and fellow image bearer. You never hit or abuse them. You never threaten. You never break up families. You never look down on them. You pray for them regularly, share the gospel, teach them to read, and by the way, tell them if they want their freedom, it's theirs whenever they want it. And if you say, well, Scott, that doesn't, that doesn't sound like slavery. You're treating them way better than a slave. I say, exactly. You're treating them as above a slave, as a beloved brother. That's the only kind of slavery that the Bible would allow. You better love your slave and sacrifice for him or her, whether or not they're a Christian. You better go out of your way to bless them and do practical good and spiritual good to them because you are a slave of Christ. And you are to love your neighbor as yourself. In conclusion, it might be helpful to remember that Paul calls Christians uh, slaves of Christ. It's what we read in Romans 6, our call to worship. 
Literally, Christ is our Lord. He's our master. And how does our master treat us? Does he take advantage of us? Beat us? Abuse us? No. He lays down his life. He dies to serve us. Beloved, praise the Lord. We have a gracious master. Never harsh, always forgiving, affectionate, and sympathetic towards his people. That's how Christian slave masters in Colossae, like Philemon, were to treat their slaves if they didn't free them. So if you have questions about this, it is a difficult topic. Let me encourage you to talk to me uh, after service today. We would love to chat over dinner tonight after the evening service. Um, this, This is something that, especially I think as Americans, given our history, we are sensitive to. Because we know how the the institution of slavery has been so heinously abused for such wickedness. Uh, So I understand this is a difficult topic. Come talk to me. I'd love to chat, hear your perspective uh, as we think about these things together. That's our first point. Our second point is, okay, well, what do we do with Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1? Like, do we just say, all right, well, you know, good history lesson. Thanks for that, Scott. Well, no, I I think there is relevance to God's word. Uh, When Paul is addressing slaves and masters, he's telling them about how they should work in their respective roles. And so now I think it's important that we think about how we work in our respective roles. Uh, So Christians have often applied kind of this section as it relates to work and vocation. So that's our second point uh, entitled, Working Unto the Lord. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you may have noticed the main idea of our passage today is the same as it's been the week before and the week prior to that. And as every season of life, live for the Lord. And the reason it's been the same is that in the eight verses of this household code, Paul motivates our behavior with the Lord. He mentions the Lord seven times. We'll see how prominent that is in our passage. So look at verse 22. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. His main point is obvious. Slaves should obey their masters. Uh, And there's an important wordplay going on in our passage. Uh, The multiple times you see master in our passage, it's actually the same word as Lord. So you see the, the contrast in verse Uh, 22, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly lords. Then verse 24, at the end, you are serving the Lord Christ. Paul's intent to show that one's earthly lords aren't the true Lord. Jesus Christ is. Uh, Even still, slaves are called to obey their lords, their masters. And Paul qualifies that negatively and positively. Negatively, uh, they should not serve by way of eye service, as people pleasers. Now, eye service simply means to work in such a way uh, that you only work hard when your boss is watching you, right? To work hard when you're being evaluated, uh, but then slack off when the pressure isn't on. So I ask you, Christian, what about you? Uh, When you're in the office with coworkers, are you diligent and disciplined and hardworking? only to slack off and be lazy at home. 
Are you tempted to work hard when it's time for a performance review? Or when you hear there are rumors of layoffs going on, uh, but then you lack any urgency or diligence when all seems well? And of course, the, the reason we do this kind of eye service is that we are seeking to be people pleasers, as Paul says. You know, why would we start working hard all of a sudden when our boss shows up, when we're tempted to relax and not work hard when he or she is not there? Uh, it's because we want to please people. And not in a good way, right? Not in the kind of like, I'm going to be helpful to people. No, instead, Paul, when he's referring to this people pleasing, he's referring to a fundamental orientation that we have. Do you live for the approval and plaudits and praise of man? Or do you live for God's pleasure? Do you live for the approval and plaudits of man? Or do we live for God's approval? It is so easy in the workplace to live for the approval of others, isn't it? I mean, when we do a good job, when we show up early, when we take on extra work, when we accomplish our goals, when we lead teams, uh, we can be tempted to make others' approval our highest goal. We, we wouldn't kind of generally come out and say it. You know, we're just trying to work hard. Uh, we're just trying to, to do a good job to help out the team. But friends, our hearts are deceitful, aren't they? How easy it is to serve others and work hard not for the, the good of the company, not for the good of the client, but that our name, that people might look upon us with praise, for applause. When we are living to please others, we're essentially living to get glory to self rather than to give glory to God. When we live to please others, we are essentially living to get glory to self rather than to give glory to God. And so instead, how would the Lord have us work? Uh, well, the end of verse 22 says, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Here we see the contrast. Uh, to work with sincerity of heart is to work in such a way that our, our external behavior matches our inward attitudes. So we don't just do an outward show when our boss comes around or when it's time for a performance review, but we actually work with integrity. And the reason we would do that hard work is none other than that we fear the Lord. Uh, we covered this topic a decent amount in our series in Malachi. Uh, and there we discovered that the fear of the Lord isn't um, a, a total you know, cowering fear where we, we turn away from the Lord. But to rightly fear the Lord is to have a joyful, humbled reverence for who God is. An adoration for his glory and his grace. It's to treat God as if he is the most real and important and significant reality in every situation. Because he is. And thus to fear the Lord in our workplace means that we live for his approval. We work in the knowledge of his reality. His presence, his judgment and character rather than the praise of man. This fear of the Lord protects us from eye service and people-pleasing. It protects us from moral compromise. Because we live for him and not for others. I, I wonder how that shows up in your work. 
one of this one of the ways this shows up in my particular line of work in pastoring is to have the the moral courage to say what is true rather than what is convenient or easy. I trust that's true in your job as well. Uh, for me, you know, one of the kind of foundational pieces of, of preaching advice that, that's often given is to, to preach to an audience of one. The point is that if I looked out at this crowd and I thought, okay, what does, does she want to hear? Or does he want to hear? Uh, if I was paying too much attention to the congregation, I would be tempted to change the message. And so instead, I should preach to an audience of one, understanding that God is the ultimate authority and judge of human hearts and behavior. I'm guessing there's a parallel in your own work, uh, whether you're a homemaker or whether you're in the workplace. We should live not for the approval and accolades of those around us, but what will bring glory to God. It might mean changing the subject when coworkers are reveling in some juicy office gossip because you fear the Lord. It might mean refusing to grumble or complain at the Lord's providence in your work. It might mean keeping your integrity when a client wouldn't know the difference. Um, as Christians, we kind of just have to die to the desire to be popular. We, we just kind of have to let go of the desire to be well-liked. Right? Of course, we want to be helpful and kind to people. Yes and amen. But we've just got to have a, a holy indifference to whether or not they like us. Because we live for God. We fear the Lord, and we work for his approval, not theirs. In verse 23, Paul repeats kind of the same basic idea. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You know, whatever you do, whether you're a bricklayer or a banker, a homemaker or a dental hygienist, Whatever you do should be done for the Lord. All right, so this is, this is really important. You don't need to become a pastor or missionary to serve the Lord. You don't need to become a pastor or a missionary to serve the Lord. You don't. Uh, I People will come up to me oftentimes and be like, oh man, like, so when did you decide to serve, to serve the Lord? And I know what they're getting at. But in my head, the snarky side of me wants to be like, when I became a Christian. I hope that's true for you too. Uh, being a Christian, we are all called to serve the Lord in whatever particular way the Lord has assigned to us. Did you notice in that 1 Corinthians 7 reading, uh, that first verse states, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. Your being a software engineer is not an accident. Your being a grandmother or a gardener, uh, your being a banker, your being a brother or a child, your living in Bedford or Burlington or Hanscom or New Hampshire, it's not an accident. God has assigned you to that. He's kind of like the general, you know, deploying his forces. I'm going to put you in Nashua, you in Burlington, you in Westford, you in this office place, you in that school, you in this community group. I mean, it's just God calls us. He assigns us to these different areas in life. 
And that's where we're called to be faithful in. You see, God's calling on your life is not some mystical, hidden thing that we all need to uncover for our lives. Like, oh, I wonder what God has called me to. Uh, No, your calling, biblically, is the set of responsibilities and opportunities that the Lord has given you right now. So three and a half weeks ago, Stephen and Carly were intending to get married. We thought they were called to marriage. And lo and behold, they are. Praise the Lord, they're married. Four weeks ago, Stephen was called to be a single guy. Now he's called to be a married man. Same with Carly. What a joyous calling it is. Being single or married. uh, Working in the workplace or in the home. You don't have to go to seminary or go to the mission field to serve the Lord. In whatever God has called you to, be faithful in that because, well, Jesus is our boss. Do you see see that in verse 23? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. Work at your job as if Jesus were your boss. The implication is you will work heartily. You will not slack off. Uh, You will not slack and be lazy. They're added that we will be disciplined, that we'll give ourselves to working with excellence and care. You know, Paul is here commending and commanding Christians to work hard. And so I think it's fair to say that Christians should be some of the best employees in their workplace. Not because we're the smartest or most creative or most, you know, affluent or fluent and and persuasive. But Christians should just work really hard. Uh, With your coworkers, you should be known for that. With your superiors, Christians should be known for happily submitting to the authority of others. Not grumbling and complaining and backbiting and backstabbing. Christian bosses should be known for being fair and just, and humble with those entrusted to them. Now, of course, in some ways, you know, we won't be the best employees because we refuse to make our jobs the most important thing in our lives, right? Our work does not claim our highest allegiance. God does. So there are some corners that we just won't cut. Hours we won't work. Jobs we won't take. That might upset our boss or our employer's. Nevertheless, we do work hard because we understand that there is no such thing as a sacred, secular divide. Okay? There's no such thing as a sacred, secular divide. Wherein, you know, we serve God in sacred tasks like Bible reading and evangelism and missions. And then we just have this secular stuff where we do whatever and God doesn't care about it. No, like we serve the Lord in all of life. Whether a plumber or an accountant or a homemaker Whatever you are, an engineer, a doctor, nurse, whatever it is, landscaper, student, you can serve the Lord in whatever career you take. Uh, What what does that mean? You know, how should you know what jobs to take? Let me just give, super briefly, four questions to ask as you think about different job opportunities that the Lord might might bring to you. Uh, Number one, is it sinful? Okay? So it would be wrong to be a drug dealer or hitman for hire. Okay? So if you're like, is God calling me to be a hitman for hire? I, I'm happy to be the voice of God in your life and say no. Uh, number two, do you have the desire? Like, 
do you want to be a dental hygienist? Number three, do you have the qualifications? I might want to be an astronaut. I am totally lacking in the qualifications. Uh, and number four, do you have the opportunity? Again, I might want to go to Mars, but nobody's been asking me to hop on a flight. And so if you answer, you know, if you answer those questions, well, like, well, no, it's not sinful. Yeah, I have the desire. Yeah, I do have the qualifications. Yeah, I, I've got the opportunity. Then, brothers and sisters in Christ, you have freedom to do that. There might be more or less wise, you know, opportunities available to you, but you're free to move to another city, enter a degree program, transfer jobs. Uh, don't wait for the writing in the clouds. God cares less about what you do, engineer, architect, teacher, nurse, pastor, politician, and more about how you do it. Whether you're imaging Christ as you work hard and serve the Lord. You know, the reason we can serve God in all these jobs is that work is not ancillary or optional to human life. It's not just something that, you know, we've kind of invented on the side. It's a necessary evil. We just try to get it over with, get it out of the way so we can focus on whatever. No, if you look in the opening chapters of Genesis, we see that God, when he gives his marching orders to Adam and Eve, well, work was a crucial component Work is not a bad thing. Work precedes the curse, the fall into sin. So work is not a necessary evil, but a gift. Because the opening chapters of Genesis show us that God himself is a worker. He makes, directs, organizes, and shapes. He delegates and instructs. His work is good. And then, of course, God rests on the seventh day, proving that work isn't ultimate. When he created Adam and Eve in his image, one of the primary ways that they were to show off his character and reflect his glory is by they themselves becoming workers and having dominion and ruling as God has dominion and rules. It was only after the fall into sin that work became cursed and that our labor became toilsome and painful. Uh, but still, work remains good even as it is imperfect. You know, there are some days that seems in the Lord's kindness, we really lean into the goodness of work. You know, meetings go well, appointments go well, we solve problems, everyone gets along, and we're like, wow, this is awesome. Praise the Lord. The kids are obedient. I mean, it's just like a great day at work. And then there are days that are horrible. The printer jams 30 times, you're late for the meeting, so-and-so doesn't show up, you're behind on schedule. I mean, it's just, it's just horrible. Well, yeah, that's, that's life. It's a good gift. It's a fallen gift because of sin. So friends, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and do it, verse 24, because you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. The point is a simple one. Serve the one who will reward your service. That is, serve the Lord and not man, because it is the Lord who will give your reward. Right? So if you start working at Starbucks next week, you're not expecting a paycheck from donkeys. If you were employed by the United States Air Force, there would be a major problem if you received a check from the Russian government. Uh, you work for the one who will reward you. And Paul 
wants you, Christian, to seek the better reward. Now, now we do this, and there's nothing wrong with it. We seek the highest compensation for our labors, right? Uh, We want the bigger, better reward. And Paul knows this. So he doesn't say, serve the Lord, work heartily as unto him, because it's your duty, and yet you're going to be miserable. You'll wish you were giving your extra energy and devotion to your earthly master, for then at least he would have given you a great big sum of money, but you should still serve Christ for that lesser reward. It's not what he says. No, look. He says, whatever you do, work as unto the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. What's the inheritance? Just flip flip back, Colossians 1.13. The Apostle Paul says that we should give thanks, Colossians 1.13, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, what is the inheritance that we are awaiting? It is the kingdom of God's beloved son. The new heavens and new earth where perfect peace and justice and harmony and love reigns, where there will be laughter and singing and rejoicing. The place where death is swallowed up where sin and suffering are no more, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, where he will sing over us with loud loud shouts of joy, where we will be forever with the Lord. This is the inheritance that God wants you to pursue. And and so you might ask, well, is, is this the type of reward as Paul says in verse 24, that we earn. I hear Paul is discussing the realm of compensation, right? Don't worry as much about your master's compensation. Seek the eternal inheritance as your reward. Do we earn our way into heaven? Well, not at all. Pay attention again to Colossians 1. Listen to who does what. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Did you catch it? God qualifies. God delivers. God transfers. In Christ, we're purchased. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. God does all of that. And what do we do? What do we contribute? We don't do nada except give thanks. That's our response. That's our responsibility. And so how do we give thanks? Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. This means, friends, that you can only serve the Lord if you first let him serve you. You must first recognize the forgiveness of sins that is offered through Jesus Christ, through his perfect life and substitutionary death through his glorious resurrection from the dead. You must first receive that gift by faith, by trusting in the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And then it's on the basis of that, in thanksgiving, that we serve the Lord. 
If you're not a Christian here this morning, the fundamental call on you isn't to work so that you are accepted, but to work because you are accepted, because of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, an eye towards our heavenly inheritance means that we shouldn't be as concerned with our earthly compensation as we are with our heavenly crown. I'm not saying that money is wrong. I'm not saying that money is evil. I'm not saying it's wrong to desire to be compensated to provide for your family. Uh, Money is a gift from God uh, to be used to provide for ourselves and others and to enjoy God's good gifts and be generous. That's why God gives you money. But you should be more concerned about your eternal inheritance than your monthly compensation. We need to live in light of eternity with God and his judgment as the most real reality in our lives. Beware if you check your bank account balance more than you spend time meditating on God's word. Beware if you are destroyed when you aren't given a raise, but you think seldom of the glories of heaven. And so Paul commands to the slaves, they they come to a conclusion at the end of verse 24 and then verse 25. Uh, We read, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Again, we should serve the Lord Christ. Literally, the word is uh, be a slave. Work as a slave for the Lord Jesus Christ. Your earthly masters are just that. Uh, Work hard for your boss. Do your job well. But more than that, look beyond to serve the true Lord, Jesus Christ. That's why it's not the end if you lose your job or are laid off. Right? Because, I mean, you are ultimately never serving. Amazon or AutoZone or the Air Force, anyway. You were serving Christ. And now apparently he's going to move you to a different season of life. It might be more time at home. It might be with another company. It might be across the country. Uh, Who knows? But in another sense, who cares? You'll be serving the Lord no matter what. Whether you have a job, whether you're underemployed, whether you're unemployed. Serve the Lord, Christian, and whatever he entrusts to you. Verse 25 gets at the fact that any wrong or abuse or wickedness that you experience from the hands of your earthly masters will be justly repaid. Uh, When you might think that earthly masters are getting away with harsh or abusive behavior, um, these slaves can be sure that on judgment day, justice will be served. Just as he wants them to look to their inheritance, he also wants them to look to the justice that will be served towards the evildoer. Uh, God is not partial. He's not biased. He can't be bribed. He will not favor the wicked slave nor the wicked master. All and any wrongdoers will be paid back. And so Paul reminds us again to live in light of judgment day. And thus we come to our final verse in chapter 4, verse 1. Just a little more literally, it reads... Lords, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a Lord in heaven. This call to treat slaves well would have been relatively unheard of in Paul's day. There were no slaves' rights groups, no rallies or political organizations. And so what Paul is calling them to is practically unheard of in his day, to treat them fairly and just. And notice how he does it. 
as we conclude, you notice it's the same word that verse 24 had. Knowing. You see how verse 24 begins with that? Trinity Church of Bedford, if you're an employee, work hard in your job, serve the Lord, and do this because you know the inheritance that he will give you on the last day. And Trinity Church of Bedford, if you're an employer or boss, treat your subordinates well because you know the justice that the Lord God will give on, final, on the final day. In short, when it comes to work and vocation, there are two errors. The first is you can make an idol out of work. You look for meaning, satisfaction, purpose, and hope in your nine to five. In doing so, you become like the boy, frustrated that his new toy scooter hasn't given him the ability to fly. Your misplaced hopes and expectations will lead only to frustration and pain. Uh, the second error is being idle, I-D-L-E, in our work. That is, we fail to appreciate why God has put us here and the good that our work does. And so you see, on the one hand, Paul says to us today, pay attention to now. Don't slack off. Be a good employee and employer. But on the other hand, pay attention to then, that great day when Christ will return, and we will all see him face to face. And he will render to us that which he will. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you've entrusted to us such a task as working in your creation. We praise you for the glory that awaits us, the hope and the grace and the inheritance for all those who have put their faith in Christ. We pray that if there are any here who have not trusted in Christ, they would see that fundamental work that you do for them, and they would receive it by faith. We pray that for those who are your children, we would work hard in whatever you give to us for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.